tribal governments are governments. One thing you hear over and over again is the sense that, oh no, like, you know, wouldn't it be terrible if this case was decided in favor of the tribes and then half of Oklahoma was an Indian reservation? But why would that be so terrible? Welcome to Briefly, a production of the University of Chicago Law Review. My name is Chase Robinson. And I'm Eden Bernstein. And today we are joined by Elizabeth Reese, a Bigelow Fellow at the University of Chicago Law School, and Matthew L. M. Fletcher, Professor of Law and Director of the Indigenous Law and Policy Center at Michigan State University College of Law. We'll be talking about two cases pending before the Supreme Court, which will determine whether about half of the land in what we have thought of as Oklahoma is actually an Indian reservation. First off, thank you very much for coming on briefly with us, Professor Reese. Um, We're hoping you could just introduce yourself a little bit for the audience. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, My name is Elizabeth Reese, uh, but it's also Yumpovi, which is uh, Tewa, my uh, indigenous traditional language for uh, willow flower. Um, And I'm originally from Nambe Pueblo, New Mexico, which is a uh, small Indian reservation just north of Santa Fe, New Mexico. I am also an enrolled member there of my tribe. You mentioned the word Indian uh, in your introduction. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit more about terminology in this area of the law? Yeah, of course. Uh, So I think as a a general note, um, you know, just beyond law, when you're interacting with Native people, you should first and foremost always try to use their tribe uh, when you're talking with them. So figure out what that is. And, um, you know, for me, I'm from Nambe Pueblo. So, you know, that is the identity that um, is most salient and important to who I am and my cultural identity, as opposed to the uh, grouping of Indian or Native American, which is really the whole continent of people. So it's about as the equivalent of calling someone Asian. So it's, um, you know, it's a thing, but it's not as salient of a thing as the more precise term. So always go for that if you can. Um, But then otherwise, yeah, there is a lot of debate about whether to use Native, Native American, Indigenous, American Indian, Indian, Indigenous American. In Canada, they use First Nations. There are all kinds of terms. Um, But generally, in the legal world, it is really common to use Indian. Um, And the reason that is, is because we're lawyers. And the law, lots of laws written by Congress and lots of treaties negotiated by the U.S. government um, with Indian tribes uses that word, Indian. And so for that reason, uh, it's really common for uh, advocates, scholars, and um, Indian people to uh, use that word, uh, especially in this context. So the field is called Indian law, and you know we think we can feel free to talk about it as such. Today we're talking about Sharp versus Murphy, which has also been called Carpenter versus Murphy and Royal versus Murphy. Mr. Murphy, a member of the Creek Nation, challenged his murder conviction in Oklahoma State Court, arguing that the land he committed the murder on was actually Indian country, and therefore the Oklahoma court improperly exercised jurisdiction over his case because only the federal government can prosecute murders committed by Indians in Indian country. The question presented is now whether the land in question is Indian country. Can you tell us a little bit about the history of this case in the court? This case was uh, originally decided by the 10th Circuit uh, several years ago, Um, but the effects of the decision were stayed, um, and then uh, the Supreme Court granted cert and heard it a little over a year now, Um, and then it was 
uh, not actually decided last term. It was, in fact, held over and uh, has been relisted for oral argument again this term. It seems so much in this case turns on whether the land at issue is, quote unquote, Indian country. Uh, And that in turn turns on something called the Major Crimes Act. Uh, Could you tell us a little more about the Major Crimes Act and how it affects prosecutions of uh, tribal crime? Yeah, sure. So uh, the Major Crimes Act is a statute which means that any crime that is deemed a major crime, so uh, the definition basically is what it sounds like, a really serious crime such as murder, manslaughter, kidnapping, et cetera, et cetera, that is committed by an Indian person on Indian land uh, is up to the federal government to prosecute um, instead of an Indian tribe, and also instead of a state government. So what that means is that for crimes committed in Indian country, uh, instead of the state being the authority responsible for that prosecution, it's oftentimes the federal government. Does Indian country simply mean a reservation, or does it mean something else? So Indian country is a precise uh, definition uh, within federal law. It does include land within reservations, but it also includes dependent Indian communities outside reservations, um, certain allotted lands that haven't lost their Indian title, um, and other lands taken into trust by the federal government for the Indian tribe that might be outside the reservation boundaries. We mentioned terminology before. I think similarly, a lot of listeners know what a reservation is in the abstract sense, but Could you, given your experience, kind of describe what a reservation is? I think to answer your question accurately, I need to cover both the intended definition of a reservation and then also uh, what reservations are now actually. So start off by remembering that Indian tribes were once foreign nations dealing with the United States government on a government-to-government basis. Uh, they were important military allies of the United States. In fact, you know, the clear way to think about this is that the Bureau of Indian Affairs started off in the Department of War. However, as the U.S. expands, they want more and more land. Uh, and through treaties with these tribal nations, they make these promises to them that they are going to be absorbed into the new and growing United States. But that they get to now become domestic dependent nations within the umbrella of the United States. And also part of this promise is that they're forever going to keep a smaller portion of this big swath of land that they are lumping over to the growing United States to keep for them to live on as a community and to also keep ruling as a domestic dependent tribal nation. Um, So... For some tribes, such as mine, uh, that piece of land is a remnant of the original land base of the tribe that they have been on for thousands of years. Um, But for others, it's a piece of land that was given to the tribe and a sort of jurisdictional boundary that was created by the U.S. government after they had resettled them after forcibly removing them from their original homelands. So really... A reservation should have been the area of land that was reserved to the tribe by the government for their exclusive use as a community and as a nation. However, (laughs) that's not how history actually happened. Uh, What we see actually happened is that we had 
basically non-Indian squatters who came into Indian reservations and uh, set up homes or farms and things like that there. And then also for a while, the United States government had a policy of basically encouraging non-Indian squatters and then also dividing up Indian land and trying to sell it off to these squatters. So uh, now that that part of United States history is for the most part over and their reservations um, are, have gone back to being protected areas by the United States government. What you have, though, is really a checkerboard uh, within the area that was intended to be contiguous. So it's now better to think of reservations as actually just a boundary line um, within which it is possible that uh, the land uh, is actually more effectively controlled by the tribe and lived on by its members, but that is also often filled with non-Indian people and non-Indian owned fee simple land. You've spoken to how reservations are established, but one of the questions in Sharp versus Murphy is about them being disestablished. So can you speak to how that would happen? Only Congress can disestablish a reservation. So Congress has plenary power over Indian affairs And uh, what that means in a case like this is that Congress in a statute has to use very clear and explicit language to say that the reservation boundaries have either become smaller or that the entire reservation itself has been disestablished or that it ceases to exist. From a Supreme Court case called Solem, we have uh, roughly a three-factor test that the court uses to look at whether or not a reservation has been disestablished. And uh, those factors are basically ordered in their order of importance. The first one is the text. So you start off by looking to the explicit language of Congress and whether or not they said disestablished or cease to exist, which oftentimes they do. Uh, They know how to be incredibly clear when they are trying to get rid of the powers that an Indian tribal government has or... Uh, trying to make it even easier for them to take that land. So uh, it's it's often very easy to find that language. Um, also kind of in the background of looking at this text factor is the Indian canon of construction. So what you have is uh, sort of com- coming from contract law almost, this principle that you assume the Indians didn't have the best bargaining position when they were making a lot of these treaties or when uh, Congress was passing some of these laws. So what you do is you construe any treaty or congressional statute in favor of the Indians, um, including any ambiguities. So the expectation for explicit language here in a congressional text is really, really high. Uh, The second factor is the context. So you look at the contemporary understanding of the law and whether or not people at the time thought that it disestablished the reservation. And then the final and then lesser factor is the demographic makeup of the area and any subsequent treatment by government officials about what they assumed the jurisdiction was. So can the second and third factors override the first? If Congress did not explicitly mention disestablishment, Has there been a case where the court has regardless said that the reservation ceases to exist? I don't believe so. No. Um, In pretty much every case, the, you know, effectively the first factor has controlled. In fact, most recently, uh, Justice Thomas 
uh, wrote an opinion which, if anything, strengthened that these factors are listed in order of their importance and, you know, emphasize that he is a textualist and this is first and foremost a textualist test um, and that these other factors, though they're there, are nowhere near as important as the requirement that Congress be clear um, in the text of its statute. It's really difficult for me not to think that these are the sorts of decisions and announcements that Congress should be making and not the court. Mm -hmm. Why do you think Congress has not stepped in already with respect to the Sharp case? I don't think Congress thinks it's going to happen. And I don't think Congress is paying attention. I think if it does, I think they will, and they will quickly. The Tenth Circuit opinion below strongly relied on the Supreme Court's 2016 reaffirmance of Solemn in Nebraska v. Parker, uh, the Clarence Thomas opinion we discussed earlier. It, it would be a fair reading of the opinion to say that reaching an opposite conclusion uh, from the Tenth Circuit would require an explicit overruling of certain aspects of Solemn. I guess that leads to the question, how has the court in recent memory treated precedent in the Indian law context? Uh, is this a field where practitioners and tribes are used to dramatic upheavals? Yes. <laughs> um, so I, I think Indian law is uh, so complex uh, in part because the United States' Indian policy is so inconsistent. So uh, this century alone has been a huge roller coaster for uh, tribal governments when it comes to the United States' policy on what to do with us, our very existence, how to support us, you know, it's, it's, they've really been all over the map. If you look at it, so, you know, the, the BIA was transferred from the Department of War to the Department of the Interior in 1849. And then in 1885, we get the Major Crimes Act, which then said that the federal government was going to, you know, step in and help uh, prosecute major crimes committed on Indian reservations. Uh, then we moved to allotment in 1887. Uh, so the U.S. government then decides that it wants to start breaking up Indian reservations and selling off the excess land, encouraging people to come in and settle, you know, basically dismantling them. Then they change their mind again and they start wanting to uh, end allotment, uh, then encourage Indian citizenship by 1924, by 19. 34, we get the Indian Reorganization Act, where officially allotment is not only over, but tribes are encouraged to pass constitutions that uh, the United States government supports and even goes around giving them model constitutions. And then they change their mind again. And by the 1950s, we have the termination of tribal governments. Uh, 20 years later, back again. And we're with Indian tribal self-determination in the 1970s in this new era where the U.S. government is, um, for the most part, really committed to supporting tribal sovereignty and, and self-determination, but with uh, the court, you know, carving out some particular holes over what that means, particularly with regards to tribes' powers over non-Indians on um, fee land especially. Uh, so I, I think that you have to look at this whole history of the federal government and Congress uh, changing its mind over and over again about how Indians are going to fit into the United States um, as citizens, as people, uh, but also tribal governments as nations, as domestic dependent nations, and what that's going to mean within the United States. 
that changes and the Supreme Court is trying to create a coherent doctrine of uh, Indian law and precedent that survives this entire period, um, it's in some ways no wonder that um, we get these feelings of either whiplash or inconsistency or sort of having to pull uh, disparate threads together. Thank you so much for being here with us today, Professor Rees. And before we go, I just wanted to ask, are there any other aspects of this case that you would like to comment on? One thing I really want to emphasize is that tribal governments are governments. So one thing you hear over and over again is the sense that, oh no, like, you know, wouldn't it be terrible if if this case was decided in favor of the tribes and then half of Oklahoma was an Indian reservation? Uh, but you know, why would that be so terrible, honestly? I mean, it probably wouldn't make that much of a difference because tribes have such limited authority over non-Indians. But even if they did, this is really a choice of law problem or a conflict of law problem. But what's frustrating is you don't see the court worried about the substance of the difference between the law. So you don't see them sitting there thinking, what is Creek law? You know, how does the Creek tribe govern itself? There's almost just this sort of looming fear that if the Creek Nation were to take over and then this area of Oklahoma would then be under their jurisdiction, that, of course, that would be a bad thing. But why would that be a bad thing? I think it it's really revealing as to how much we don't know about tribal law and about tribal governance and how much there still is maybe even a little bit of a fear in uh, the general American populace and even still um, in the legal academy and even parts elite parts of the legal profession about what tribes are, what they're doing, um, what it might mean to live on a piece of land that is governed by an Indian tribe. And I think if we really uh, took the time to sort of peel back that curtain um, and figure out uh, what that means, I think we'd be surprised. You know, tribes are governments like any other, and I think more familiar than they are different in a lot of ways. And we might realize that uh, tribal governments, you know, in fact, in some ways pass laws that are, you know, we might like better or <laughs> that... Um, we might find more hospitable to certain interests or might be more responsive to local concerns. I'd be really interested to see an alternative world almost where we were, you know, setting aside some of the reliance interests that we do need to figure out, where we were almost excited to see what it would be like to give the Creek Nation the opportunity to engage in this kind of governance. Well, we have some strong advocates in this case, so hopefully we hear some of those points being made as the case progresses. Thank you so much for joining us today, and thank you for sharing your insight on this case. Our next guest is Professor Fletcher. For our listeners at home, in between our interview with Elizabeth Reese and our current phone call with Professor Fletcher, the Supreme Court has granted cert in a new case with an identical issue, McGirt v. Oklahoma, whereas Justice Gorsuch was recused in the previous case, and this one he will not be, allowing the issue to be heard by the whole court. Welcome to Briefly, Professor. Would you mind sharing your background with our listeners? My name is Matthew Fletcher. I'm a professor of law at Michigan State University College of Law and director of the Indigenous Law and Policy Center here. And I am also a citizen of the Grand Traverse Band of Ottawa and Chippewa Indians. Now, Justice Marshall in the solemn case, he famously focused on the Indian character of the land at issue and if that was still present. 
But kind of the unanimous court in Nebraska v. Parker really stepped away from that and focused more on the text and not on the underlying character of the land. Was this a mistake? Should the underlying character of the land play any role in the court's analysis? So that's a really good question. Um, you know, we have a Supreme Court right now that uh, has re- some of the justices have referred to themselves as textualists. And Justice Kagan even once said, we are all textualists now. And I add in whether we like it or not. Um, you know, back in the 80s when Justice Marshall wrote this, uh, it was a case involving the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe reservation that is about as Indian as it gets. And um, so normally the rule always has been on reservation boundaries. If Congress intended for a reservation to be diminished or disestablished, it would have said so. And um, it's really, Congress doesn't really have a language or a set routine for saying this, we intend this reservation to be diminished or disestablished. So the court is always looking for an act of Congress, some text that would indicate some evidence that it is that reservation is to be disestablished. That is almost never present. And so what the court does do, and apparently is doing now with at least the uh, recent Oklahoma case, is look beyond the text. Now, all justices will tell you they're a textualist, one way or the other. I mean, there maybe they're faint-hearted textualists, to, to uh, paraphrase what people used to describe Justice Scalia, but they're still textualists. And what's interesting is where you see the court, the individual justices deviate from, from their textualism. And Justice Marshall deviated from textualism in order to preserve, uh, to create an argument to preserve the boundaries of the Cheyenne River Sioux Reservation, because it was apparent, um, probably from the, the, those who ended up dissenting, that a good chunk of the court back in those days was, you know, leading toward a, a diminishment or a disestablishment of that reservation. So it made sense to cobble together a theory, an argument, based on this very amorphous notion of Indian character. So in that way, uh, for that case, I suppose if you're interested in tribal sovereignty, it was a good strategic move. But for the next 20 years, it meant that uh, the court was going to return to that phrase again and again and find other reservations disestablished. So was it a good move? I don't know. Um, the text in some cases may be more supportive of reservation diminishment than others. Um, the Indian character of the reservation may be supportive, uh, or that kind of analysis may be more supportive of a um, reservation diminishment than others. Uh, it, all of these cases are just to be litigated. My sense is uh, that what's interesting in these cases, particularly the Nebraska case versus the Oklahoma case, is that in the Nebraska case, the, um, the stakes were way lower than they are in the Oklahoma case. And uh, when the stakes are low, the court doesn't, ma- it doesn't care that much whether or not the reservation is disestablished or diminished. And so it's okay to just rely on the text. But it's apparent to me that, that the court is a faint-hearted textualist as a group when it comes to a case like the Oklahoma case where Oklahoma, at least, is making the argument that, you know, this will cut the gut out of the entire state of Oklahoma if you turn it back to Indian country. And um, so they, they're not relying on the text anymore. It's, it's, it's apparent to me based on oral argument questions 
It's based on, you know, the, the supplemental briefing requests by, that the court made, which was almost exclusively about the Indian character of the reservation or some aspect of that. So just speaking about the request that the court made for a supplemental briefing, it seems plausible that the court did this for uh, more information about practical considerations and what exactly would happen in Oklahoma if that area were to uh, be deemed Indian country. So the first question that I have about that is, as a normative matter, should factors like practical considerations be relevant to the court's rulings? Well, if the court is a textualist court, then no, it shouldn't have any matter. Uh, it shouldn't matter at all. But we all know that the court is a policy court. They're the last court that can't be reversed. Most amicus briefs are all about public policy, and we know that the court takes at least some of that that material into consideration. The fact that in the Murphy case, the court explicitly asked for the public policy considerations, the practical considerations, is uh, one of the rare acknowledgments overtly that the court is saying, we're going to decide this based on public policy. Um, And that's a little bit interesting, given that the court is a textual court. As a textualist court, they're there to call balls and strikes. Um, They want to read the text. Uh, Indian law is uniquely federal. Uh, Congress decides the general policies, the parameters of everything related to federal Indian law, and the executive branch implements that as its own twist or whatever. But in general, Indian law, up until really the 70s and 80s, 1970s and 80s, was considered almost like a political question, a foreign affairs question that the judiciary wouldn't interfere in. So, you know, to the core of the 50s, 60s, 70s that relied fairly heavily on this notion that Indian law is uniquely political question, now, to those justices that have seen what this court is doing in relation to seeking some details on pragmatic considerations, I think they'd be a little surprised. The other, the other aspect to all of this is that there are practical considerations when it comes to whether lands are considered Indian country for criminal jurisdiction purposes or not. And the interesting thing about Indian country that I, I suspect the court doesn't really have a very good grasp of is that the vast majority of Indian country that is disputed, meaning that the lands are sort of a gray area as to whether it is Indian country, all of that has already been negotiated out, outside of the judicial process. So Muskogee Creek Nation, which is the tribe at issue here, already has public safety cooperative agreements and cross-deputization agreements with virtually all of the relevant jurisdictions within its reservation boundaries. So the weird thing here is that the impact is not really going to be all that important. Yes, it's going to impact certain state convictions that are pending right now in the Supreme Court. There's three or four of these types of cases that are kind of kicking around, but um, all of this stuff has already been negotiated out. What exactly would happen if the court found the land in question was Indian country? What would that mean for prior convictions? If a somebody who is an Indian person has been convicted by the state of Oklahoma within the exterior boundaries of the Muskogee Creek Reservation, and they did not raise the jurisdictional issue earlier, they've waived it. They, they can't instantly be released from jail because the state ostensibly didn't have jurisdiction over them. So the impacts are pretty minimal. There may be a few people in jail right now in Oklahoma that 
uh, raised that jurisdictional issue that Murphy made, or excuse me, yeah, that Murphy made and McGirt made. And like I said, there's a couple of others that I'm aware of that are sort of sitting in the Supreme Court right now. But other than those few, nobody's going to be affected. They've, they've waived all of their jurisdictional rights, and they don't have a habeas right to make this claim at this point. And the court is reluctant to make new criminal procedure rules that it articulates retroactive. You know, you get a lot in the news media of these sensational headlines. You know, Oklahoma, half of Oklahoma is going to be an Indian reservation or some such thing that isn't necessarily accurate, but it definitely captures the imagination. And of course, Congress could step in if Mr. Murphy receives a favorable verdict and diminish the reservation explicitly, do what, you know, the Congress did not do in the early 1900s. Do you think that that should be a concern that the tribes have if a favorable verdict is reached here? Uh, and if it was something Congress was considering, what would you tell Congress? You know, I haven't heard that Congress has paid much attention to this particular case, but uh, you're right. Um, you know, this, the headlines are really remarkable. And there are even tribal advocates and tribal interests who are calling for the restoration of Oklahoma to be Indian country, that sort of thing. So I suppose Congress could pay attention to it. But there's a couple of things. There's two ways to look at how Indian reservations are treated. There's the civil and there's the criminal side. So I've talked a little bit about the criminal side. The federal government would have to take primary responsibility going forward for the major crimes, the felonies that come out of Indian country that right now Oklahoma seems to be handling. As to the civil side, the impact should be almost completely nominal. And uh, the Supreme Court has already articulated rules that if you're not directly on lands owned by the tribe, held in trust for the benefit of the tribe, or owned by tribal members, then the, the tribe's jurisdiction is almost non-existent over non-members on non-member-owned land. And most of the land within the reservation is owned by non-members. So um, on the civil side, the impact is going to be very nominal. Um, if, if Congress wanted to terminate this reservation wouldn't impact the the tribe's lands. The tribe would still have its own lands and be able to exercise a jurisdiction within its own lands. There are public policy considerations at play that um, will not be easy for Congress to acknowledge. Uh, the tribe has always continued to act from, from 1906 on and before that, since it's been on this reservation, uh, to act as if the reservation does uh, belong to the tribe. And so Within those exterior reservation boundaries now, Muskogee Creek Nation, which actually has a fair amount of resources, has reopened a few hospitals that were basically abandoned or closed down. Um, they've exercised jurisdiction, police jurisdiction, ambulance jurisdiction, public safety jurisdiction, in a way that the local governments in the state of Oklahoma cannot or will not do. So, you know, there there's a problem in Oklahoma, which Congress will probably never overtly acknowledge, which is the state really is bankrupt. It doesn't have resources to govern itself effectively. There's no state income tax. I don't, I'm not even sure if there's a state sales tax. And um, the state of Oklahoma itself doesn't have resources to do, to do much of anything. And the tribe has really, over the last couple of decades, stepped up and provided government services to both tribal members and non-members um, in a way that the state itself cannot or will not do. And that would be probably the biggest impact to the diminishment of the reservation is that, you know, the tribe might close down those hospitals, those rural hospitals that it was keeping open. So stuff like that would be 
a bad impact. And uh, again, these are things that Congress should take into consideration, but I imagine, given the way Congress is, it would not do that. This has been Briefly, a production of the University of Chicago Law Review. Follow us on Twitter at UshaiElrath and like us on Facebook. You can find more episodes of Briefly on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play.